Gracious God, you took on flesh, you lived the perfect human life. Now you've given us that life. And Lord, we admit to you that we are very quick to set it aside and opt for our own desires and impulses. So would you be gracious to us, Lord, to love your life more than our own. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. To begin with, why don't we take a little bit of a quiz. You are not in school, but uh, it's just family here this morning, so why don't we do this? Uh, give you an opportunity to respond. Anybody able to tell me who were the 12 disciples pre-crucifixion, the names of the 12 disciples? Can we name them? You get the first three, right? You know the first three. Peter, James, and John. All right, now who's after that? Andrew, Judas, yes, Bartholomew, another James, James the Lesser, Thomas, I heard Thomas, there's another Simon, yes, Simon the Zealot, did anybody say Thaddeus? How can you forget Thaddeus, right? Good old Thad. I think we mentioned Bartholomew. Bartholomew was also called Nathaniel. Uh, he had two names. What? <laughs> All right, isn't that funny? Oh, here's a bonus. Um, the disciple that was appointed after Jesus' resurrection to replace Judas? Matthias, that's right. Matthias. Bonus points in the back there. Isn't it interesting that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, came to save the world and the plan to do it involved a band of men we know little to nothing about. And we even struggle to recall their names. Isn't that fascinating? Even the most famous disciple, Peter, we know little, little about his private life. He was a fisherman. Uh, he had a mother-in-law. We know little else. Did he have children? Did they follow in his footsteps as witnesses to Jesus? Who knows? Oh, what about Thaddeus or Bartholomew? I mean, tradition shares just bits and pieces here and there about some of these obscure disciples. But by our modern biographical standards, where information is always right at our fingertips, we know nothing about these guys. I find it just remarkable that at the center of this whole salvation, eternal life, born-again business is a group of obscure, uneducated, complaining, frightened, doubting men whom we barely remember. <laughs> Makes you wonder. Have you ever wondered that if God is God and Jesus is the Son of God, why didn't He just speak to recreate the world and bypass this effort to drag us along into His kingdom, His business? If God can speak everything into existence, as Genesis tells us, then why, after the fall, didn't He just speak and renew our existence? Why does the light of the world choose us 
choose Judas, choose this band of ill-suited, clumsy outliers to enter into this most unusual, unexpected, and protracted process of saving the world. For reasons that we can only infer, Jesus chooses to fulfill his mission in the world in partnership with us. He chooses ordinary, unqualified people like you and I to be his lights, lowercase l. I suppose, theologically, we need to affirm God's sovereign freedom from the world. And what I mean by that is, he doesn't need the world or us in order to exist perfectly in himself. He exists perfectly in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a theological tenet that we probably need to affirm, yes. But, we don't really know anything about that God. Because the only God we know is the one that's been revealed to us. And the one that's been revealed to us is united in relationship to the world and to us. God has chosen to be God in unity with us. Now if that wasn't confounding enough, it's worth reminding ourselves about the sort of people God partners with to do His work. It's an unlikely bunch, to say the least. We've read about Moses. If you were at the burning bush with Moses, would you have debated with God at that point, seeing a bush that is not consumed and God speaking from heaven? Would you have negotiated with him? I mean, it's just amazing. Jacob, Rahab, the harlot, Samson, what a numpty that guy was. Gideon, Samuel, Jeremiah, Mary, a teenager in an obscure village. The list goes on and on. And the list continues even to today. God is still in the business of building up His church through flawed, imperfect, doubting, fearful, sinful, flesh and blood people like the ones in this room. Now, I know you because I know me. And like me, you're looking for God's light in your life. You want it. Even if you can't articulate it real clearly. And that's a motivation as to why you're here today. We need and we desire God. We want to be spiritual people. We feel the weight of our own sin. We feel the weight of the world around us and the struggle and the darkness. Some of us are knee-deep in relational pain. Others of us are just empty inside for one reason or another. And what we all hope for when we walk in this room on any given Sunday is that the weight of these problems will just float away. And will be overtaken by some warm spiritual feeling. What we want is when we're singing or praying or eating. We want to be able to close our eyes and have something happen to us. And it does sometimes. 
Perhaps God has done that for you. Perhaps he's met you in a moment that was unexpected, yet undeniably clear. Sometimes that does happen. But most of the time, that's not how God works. God tends to do his work through that person sitting close to you or next to you. When they bother to remember your name, when they invite you to their dinner table and they sacrifice and they put it in front of you, when they hold your hand and they pray with you and for you. See, that's, that tends to be the time when the light of the world shines brightest in your life and for those around you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you are the light of the world. Ponder that declaration. He's trying to convince these people that he is the son of God, that he is the light of the world. And yet he turns it and says, you are the light of the world. Whatever God wants to do in your life and in this church and in this world, he will likely do it through the little lights he's called into his family to shine for him. And do it through you. So when we say, it's very important, when we say we want spirituality, and when we say we want God's light to shine in the world, what we're saying chiefly is that we long for ordinary people to shine the light of God in physical, tangible, visible ways. That is spirituality. Now, spirituality is very popular. In our day. It's in the nooks and crannies of Portland. As you've noticed. As you walk around the city. If you tell someone around here. That you're a spiritual person. Or that you're in touch with the universe. I mean you'll likely get affirmed. Even admired. Won't you? I say oh that's wonderful. Yes I'm a spiritual person as well. You'll hear that sort of thing. Okay. That's fine. I don't think most of us are real materialists. By materialists I... I mean that that's the belief that only what we see is real. I don't think most people are. My take is that most people know there's something real that's unseen. They just aren't sure what to call it, so they call it spirituality. And spirituality is vague enough to be unoffensive and real enough to take seriously. But for the Christian, spirituality isn't comprised of these invisible sensations that make our heart flutter. Spirituality is hearing the voice of God responding in faith and then doing something about it. Spirituality is physical. I am, this is one of my spiritual gifts, I am a cliche fighter. Any other people with that gift? More like a cliche destroyer. Yeah, I mean, it's a superpower, I think. This probably stems from being a contrarian, okay? But regardless, I think it's a noble profession, a cliche fighter. Here's one I like to fight. Tell me if you've ever heard this. Let's thank God, if you said it, you don't have to tell me. But here's what it says. Let's thank God for who He is. Not for what he does. 
And then everybody in the room goes, oh yeah, that's great. Tell me, how do we know who God is? According to the Psalms. What's the only way? By the works that he does. We only see descriptions of who God is in the scripture based on what God has done and is doing. We know God by what he does. Spirituality is physical. It is in action. Imagine if I told my wife that I love her on our wedding day, which I did. And then imagine if I did nothing the next 30 years to assure her of that fact. And then when she approached me with the problem, what if I said to her, well, I told you I loved her. I loved you 30 years ago. I mean, surely you know, what I said matters. But it would only matter what I said if I did anything about it, if I showed it. Spirituality isn't an out-of-body experience that provides escape from the physical. It is primarily physical. It is that tangible reality. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You're the, you are the light of the world, and then he followed it up with this. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. Jesus shines His light through real, live human beings, so it matters what we do with our bodies. Because the spiritual life is lived out in the physical life. It matters what we do with our bodies. Now you might think that's obvious. Not worth my time to explain. But I think it is. It matters immensely what we do with our bodies. And the Apostle Paul is delaboring, belaboring this point in Corinthians. The Corinthians had some cliches. Did you pick this up? They had some cliches that had become part of their culture. And Paul was fighting those cliches. See, I'm right in line with the Apostle Paul as a cliche fighter. He's trying to teach this little church what it is to be light for Jesus in the middle of that culture. The Corinthians needed to discern carefully the difference between Christ and the culture they were in, which is certainly true for us today as well. Now, it seems that the Corinthians viewed the body as kind of sort of raw material that we use any way that we see fit, as long as it brings sufficient pleasure. What seemed to matter most for the Corinthians was their inner impulse. Whatever their heart told them was desirable. And if that impulse was overwhelming enough, then they could use their body to satisfy the impulse. And Paul is saying, no, this was what he was going through with, you say uh, the body for food, food for the body, but, you know, I, I say this. And he was fighting. So here's his response. Not everything is good for you, whatever our impulses might be. And then his second response is, God cares what you do with your bodies because He's going to raise that body from the dead one day. You see, in the end, we don't cast aside our body in favor of a spirit sitting on a cloud playing harps for eternity. 
No, we will have our bodies, even in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul certainly didn't see the body as expendable raw material that counts for nothing. And throughout the centuries, Christianity has consistently rejected any philosophy that sounded like it would separate spirit and body, material and immaterial. Our identity as human beings, and even our salvation, according to Paul, is inextricably bound to our bodies. Would it matter for us if Jesus had not taken on flesh? Did it matter what Jesus did with his body? Absolutely. The New Testament points this out over and over that Christ's body is real and that what he did in that body has eternal ramifications for the world. And so it is the same for his followers. The body matters and what we do with it matters. But why does it matter? Here's what Paul said. I'll read it again. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one, and the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. I, I don't pretend to know everything at play in this passage. There are a lot of things that are confusing to me. We have just jumped with both feet into a deep mystery of salvation. But I can tell you this. Why does God tell us to... Why does He give us guidelines about our sexual activity? Because He's an ogre? Because He's a tyrannical despot who doesn't understand us? No. He tells us to control our desires because our body is united to Christ's body. Mysteriously, but absolutely. It is a mystery. But we receive eternal life by being united to Christ's body. Here's, uh, here's something that's important to remember. Eternal life is not something that Jesus has kind of acquired from some corner of the universe and he distributes eternal life like a ticket to heaven. It's not like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory where you get the golden ticket and he hands you the ticket and like, okay, here's my ticket. When you get to those pearly gates, you hold up your ticket to heaven because Christ has given you this thing. It's not like that at all. The Apostle John says, in him, Jesus is Life. That means that receiving eternal life is the same as receiving Jesus himself. So in order for us to be saved, we have to be connected, linked into, united with the same life and breath of the body of Jesus. And that is Paul's point here. That's why we flee sexual immorality. Because we love Christ more than we love our urges. We love being lights for Him more than we love self-gratification. Because we are called, body and soul, into the work of being the light of the world. 
And being lights means that it matters what we do with our bodies. Young people, we live in a highly sexualized society where sexual freedom is just assumed. And restraining our impulses today is seen more like an invasion of our rights. And we think the stronger the impulse, the deeper the emotion, the more we think it's normal, and the more normal it all is, the more legitimate it all is. And what God tells us about such impulses and behavior sounds like a foreign language to us. It may not be as foreign as you think. We see the contradiction in our own society. On the one hand, there's the impulse to see our bodies as raw material to be used in any way we please. And then on the other hand, we have something like the Me Too movement. In that perspective, the Me Too movement is saying, no, I am not a piece of flesh to be used. Flesh is part of my identity, and when you violate my flesh, you're violating me. And that is absolutely true. And Christians for ages have believed and taught, and sometimes legalistically and harshly promoted controlling our passions and honoring our bodies so that the light of Christ can shine unhindered. You're the light of the world, Jesus says. That light is not a spiritual thing floating around in our minds. It is physical. It is tangible. It matters what we do with our bodies. God wants that light to shine. This is a challenging topic. I bet when you heard the scripture read, you thought, oh my goodness, what is about to be said? It's uncomfortable. There's a lot of shame with these topics. Dealing with it and being honest about our own hearts, our desires, even our failings, can be taxing. Dear friend of mine, pastor, he preached the funeral of an elderly lady. Shortly after the service, uh, the widower came to my friend and he was completely distraught, desperate for help. And as they talked, it emerged that decades earlier, while he was serving in World War II in France, he had, along with his buddies, succumbed to pressure and desire and went and paid for a prostitute. He said it only happened once, but he was racked with guilt and he never told his wife. And her death brought feelings of unfaithfulness and disloyalty that this gentleman could no longer suppress. So my friend put on his clerical robes. He got his Bible and some oil. He took this poor man out into the sanctuary and he knelt at the altar in front of the cross. Scripture was read. The promises of God's forgiveness were claimed. Prayers of confession were offered. My friend anointed him with oil. When it was over, the Spirit of God had done something miraculous. He had given oxygen to a flame 
that have been slowly dying. The man rejoiced in the freedom of forgiveness and the light of Christ was once again shining brightly in him. I don't want you to think for one moment that sexual failure spells the end of your calling to be a deeply spiritual person and a bright light for Christ. Remember, God does his work in the world through the unlikeliest of people. The ones who are on the margins of society. The ones who have failed. The ones who have made a mess of their lives and have no idea which way to turn. The ones who are tormented by mental illness. The ones who carry around guilt for mistakes and egregious sins. Those are the ones who matter in the kingdom of God. Because God takes all of that darkness and disperses it with a blast of eternal light, healing, and grace. And as that light shines, others can see our good deeds, tangible, spiritually physical deeds, and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.